Hey everyone, welcome to the Vassals of Kingsgrave Agatha Christie reread. We hope you all had a lovely Christmas, Hanukkah, or however you spend the festive season. And we're back with another edition, the 37th episode, and we're covering The Hollow, aka Murder After Hours, which was initially published in November 1946. And for the first time in a long while, we are back with Hercule Poirot. My name is Bina007. I'll be your host today, and I'm joined by Pat. Hi there, 2.0 on the Discord. And the reason why we've decided to do a full episode is that Pat, I think, really enjoyed this, as did All About Agatha, the podcast that we really love. Um, and I did not as much. So <laughs> maybe this will be a good debate. So, Pat, tell us a little bit about how you found The Hollow on first reading. I um, I enjoyed it. Uh, as I said, uh, um, when we were messaging about it on the Discord, I, I thought you were being a little bit unfair. I do think it's got criticisms that we can get to later on. And um, I would call it top tier. But um, depending on how our debate goes on a couple of the points i would be prepared to drop it a tier but i think like she's drawn her characters as well as any of her better novels uh um so yeah so i'd uh, i think um in lady lady sort of lucy angatel she's got like um a standout character i think um who who, who sort of merits a lot of attention um, because she's so entertaining and uh, I think like the social dynamic I, I sort of mentioned in the last podcast, I, I quite like these ones that are sort of set somewhere in this sort of um, aristocratic England of the 20s and 30s. But it's actually been written a bit later um, because mm. I think it's got this entertaining social dynamic and I, I quite enjoy my sort of Jeeves and Worcester social <laughs> dynamic. And th this has got it. So it it, it it ticks boxes for me. I think also as well, what recommends this over some other Christie's, I think in John Christo, we've got one of Agatha's more interesting men. Yes. Um, he is quite a complicated character. And so, based on someone she knew in real life, which maybe is why, because it wasn't as much of uh, an imaginative feat. Yeah, I have, I have to say, I agree with you. I think the characters are phenomenal in this book. And that is even including for the fact that the opening page of this novel reader, if you want to know what I'm like with my constant train of internal monologue aimed at whoever is in proximity halfway through the conversation is a little bit um, Lady Angatel. It is a little bit flaky in real life. So even despite the fact that I felt seen and heard by a character, which was not flattering, I still think the characterization <laughs> is really, really good. And I yeah. also like the fact that although it is country house and it is very 20s, it's more knowingly so. Like there's a lot in the novel about how Lady Angatel is trying to imitate the country house of her childhood. So the mm -hmm. fact that it feels anachronistic when it's written in 1946 and it feels a bit more like a 20s Jeeves and Worcester with Gudge and the Butler, I mm. think is very knowing. And maybe we'll come back to that when we get yeah. to a Petrum's Hotel. So I think that to me is much more successful. Where this falls down for me is in the plot mechanics. So we'll have to, unfortunately, listener, get to that in the spoiler section of this podcast. So as always, we're going to be spoiler free as we go through, you know, the context of the times, the characters, adaptations, whether it holds up to modern readers. And then when we get to the end credits music after that, we can maybe get into why I find this ultimately quite a frustrating book. Despite the fact that I agree with you, Pat, I think these are some of the best characters that we've seen, um, maybe apart from Five Little Pigs, Sad Cypress. I mean, there are other books with great characters, but I think this is a really phenomenal collection of characters and that's why people love this book right mm -hmm. um okay so let's maybe do a little introduction so the novel is indeed a country house mystery 
of the type that I think that people often think Agatha Christie only wrote. So it's set up with sort of minor aristos. Playing into the stereotype here. Absolutely. And then we have Hercule Poirot, who's rented a little cottage nearby, but is altogether uncomfortable in the country and in the sort of rustic cottage and probably is quite excited to be given the tableau of a murder, which he immediately recognises as being almost stagey in its simplicity. And that the big sort of mysteries at the heart of this novel, the one that Agatha Christie says of the novel itself is, what would a woman like look like who had just shot her husband? And that's what Hercule Poirot is posed with as well. So he basically walks down to a swimming pool and is met with the body of John Christo, um, an eminent doctor and research doctor, and his wife Gerda is standing over him with a gun, apparently having just shot him, and other members of the family, the Angatel family, are coming in to surround. They're all cousins in various ways and forms. So it is, it's kind of a closed house mystery, not quite, because there are some characters who aren't living in the house or part of the family. But the idea is, is it, it feels so apparent that the, the wife has just shot her husband and she has motive because he's serially um, cheating on her. But did she really do it? Can it really just be as simple as, yeah, the wife did it? So that's the kind of the setup of the book. Um, right, let's get into the historical context of the book and maybe some of the social change that we see. I mean, again, this is a little bit of a weird one, right, because it's written or published just after World War II. But again, there's not much mention of World War II, um, but there is some social change in here. People are motoring to the suburbs for country house weekends. Um, we have women who have degrees, university degrees. Uh, we have Midge's father. So Midge is one of the poorer Angatel cousins. And we get a mention of the fact that her father's business is slowly dying. And it's made, I think we're meant to understand that he hasn't kept up with new technological industrial change. And so one of the old types who are now coming a cropper. We have mention of a Kona coffee maker. And if you go to Kona, so C-O-N-A.co.uk, this coffee maker that Agatha Christie is mentioning is very cool looking. It's like two glass things with a glass burner underneath. Very cool. And that was only created in the year of publication. So she would have been right up to date with her, her mention of this. Oh, my God. It's a paid endorsement. I don't believe it. She, Agatha's already leveraging the marketing revenue of uh, product placement in her novels. Incredible. I wonder if Agatha Christie was much more Hercule Poirot because we know that she loved her indoor heating, her central heating. She didn't like drafty country. I mean, she loved her country house of her childhood and she lived in successive country houses. But she also has this part of her that's very modernistic. If you look at the building that she lived in in London, the Isacon building, that was incredibly avant-garde and modern at the time and very sort of Hercule Poirot, you know, rational square lines and I don't know. I just it just tickles me to think of this now 56 year old woman mentioning this like cutting edge hipster like coffee making method that you think of as sort of shorter shorter hipsters using these days. I, I think she definitely embraced the new technologies as they came along. And I think it was something that she was obviously interested in. I mean, you only have to see that when she's like writing novels about flying and things like that she, and, and all the travel. So she goes through these phases, don't you? And you see the technology get mentioned, you know, mm. and it is at the cusp of its sort of its its public sort of introduction. And she's like right there at the, the forefront. And I think, yes, you're probably right. Uh, having like a, when you when you're sitting down here thinking about this, 
you know, romantically imagining Agatha embracing all these new technologies. And if she was around like 20 years ago, I'm sure she would have had one of the first iPhones and that would have been in a novel as well. You know, she I would think, have been. Yeah. I think if I was being Stephen Fry, like she would have had one of those massive Mac. Yeah. And it would have been one of the first to be aggressively on Twitter. But it's it's great at her age. And I guess she had the money to sort of have all the latest fads too. The other thing that I thought was quite interesting, and we're going to see more of this in in other books that are forthcoming, is the idea of India being a big topic in England at the time. Because when now this was published in November 46, by the next summer, India achieves independence from um, the British Empire, like the, the jewel in the crown, to use the phrase. And John Christo is an Anglo-Indian. And it's the first mention we've had to date of um, a half-Indian character in this case. Of is he actually half-Indian? I never picked up on that. I, I know that he is the, the son of um, uh, people who are, you know, um, British citizens who are living and working in India. And so he's been farmed out to relatives in England and spent a lot of his time being brought up in boarding school. But I'd never picked up that he was like um, uh, sort of like half, well, if you, half Indian and yeah. half If you, half use, if you use the phrase Anglo-Indian with a capital A, capital I, hmm. and specifically at the time, I think that does imply that you, either your parents directly or some of your ancestors, probably some guy who went out with the empire in the 1860s. Ah, uh, right. Okay. Yeah. Together with an Indian woman. So... But the key thing about Anglo-Indians is a lot of them pass, to use that horrible phrase, as white. Yeah. And they were yeah. put in a particularly strange predicament when independence was being discussed, because what was going to be their standing in an independent India? Because they were mostly speaking English as a first language. They were typically raised as Christians. They were wearing very Western clothes. Like They were mm. culturally very, very British. And a lot of Anglo-Indians in the run-up to independence did leave India because they weren't Mm. sure of what their standing would be. I I just found that really fascinating that it's the first time in Agatha Christie that I've seen the phrase Anglo-Indian. And maybe Mm. I'm hypersensitive to it because there was every now and then Netflix will fund a big budget Indian Bollywood film. And Mm. the latest one that it funded that came on very recently was called The Archies, which is weirdly a remake of an American comic book that then became Riverdale. But apparently this was like hugely popular in India of like the 60s and 70s. But they've remade it. And and the person who's remade it has set it entirely in the Anglo-Indian community and explains what happened to them in the wake of independence, those that chose to stay behind. So maybe I'm highly sensitized to it. If anyone has a view on this listening um, and knows whether John Christo is indeed an Anglo-Indian in the definition that I'm using versus just someone who was a child born in the Raj and then shipped home for boarding school, do make a comment on the YouTube channel or join us on the Discord and and let us know. Because to me, this was really interesting. And you're going to get a lot of this in forthcoming books. And Mm. I think it's an interesting reflection of the fact that in you know dinner parties in England at the time, I'm sure people would have been discussing what happens with independence and is this the end of the British Empire? And you know this would have been post-war one of the biggest issues to hit England and and a really negative one in a way, like the the end mm. of. Well, I mean, again, I suppose it's got a sort of echoes of a more recent question we had with the, the lease being up on Hong Kong, mm. you know, and that having to be um, handed back and uh, the whole issue of Hong Kong citizenship, yeah, you know, which, uh, again, it, it is very interesting that like you have these these people who are effectively just cut off from mm. Britain. You're like, okay, we're just going to, you know, they, they don't have any rights. We're just going to surrender them. So it, it is, yeah, it, it, it's interesting, you know, yeah. um, that's sort of like post-colonial um, issues that need to be addressed. 
Absolutely. And I think if for those of you who watched the latest BBC adaptation of Murder is Easy, where they transpose it from the mid 30s to the mid 50s, they really situate that in a sort of a decolonizing British empire. And I think in a really superb way. So just something to reflect on there, too. But, you know, in the timeline of this book, since the last one was published in December 45, and this is November 46, actually, we're still kind of in the fallout of the World War II period as far as big events go. And you'll all be relieved to know that there's less history to get through, partly because it's a shorter gap between novels and partly because um, we're not in the war years. So January 46 is the first meeting of the United Nations held, I didn't know this, in the Methodist Central Hall in Westminster in London. I always think of it in New York, but no, it was in Westminster. In February, yeah, February 46, ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, an early general purpose electronic computer is unveiled at the University of Pennsylvania. It weighs over 27 tons and occupies a big room. Peron is elected in Argentina and Peronists still exist in Argentina and it's still a a major political movement. In March 1946, Ho Chi Minh is elected president of North Vietnam. And in his speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, Winston Churchill talks about the Iron Curtain. So that's where that phrase comes from, March 46. In April 46, in Japan, women vote for the first time. Trials against the war criminals begins in Tokyo. The accused include Hideki Tojo, Shigenori Togo and Hiroshi Oshima. So again, it's the reckoning of World War II. And in May 46, the Tokyo Telecommunications Engineering Company is founded, later renamed Sony, or Sony, I think you're meant to pronounce it, with about 20 employees. So all the kind of dealing with what happened to Japan in the war but also reconstructing it along more modern democratic lines are occurring. In June 1946, Italy becomes a republic. In July 46, the bikini is first modelled in Paris. At Club 500 in Atlantic City, New Jersey, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis staged their first show as a comedy team. And I love Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, so that's great. August 1946, Santa Claus Land opens to the public at Santa Claus, Indiana. I can't believe there's a place called Santa Claus, Indiana. It becomes the first ever theme park, preceding Disneyland by nine years, and is later renamed Holiday World. <laughs> yeah, and and the Finns are still put out about that today, you know, because they believe Santa Claus is firmly theirs. So <laughs> there you go. They need to have a class action lawsuit and see. In September 1946, the Turin Grand Prix is the first ever official. Formula One Grand Prix, and it's held in Italy, obviously. And October 1946, so just before publication of this book, France adopted the Constitution of the Fourth Republic, so again, reconstructing after the war along new lines, and again, reckoning for World War II. The Nuremberg trials are ongoing. Hermann Goering, founder of the Gestapo and recently convicted Nazi war criminal, poisons himself two hours before his scheduled execution. So yes, we're still, I feel like when you look at the historic context, it's all very much about what is society going to look like after World War II? And for the defeated countries, that's often sort of radical constitutional change. Um, But when we get to the next novel, which is Taken at the Flood, you'll see a lot of what that post-World War II social context was in England, and no less change in some ways, societal change, economic change, um, bringing in a landslide Labour government, massive political change. So we'll get into that domestically in the next novel. But yeah, with the inclusion of an Anglo-Indian character, I feel that you're seeing a little bit the decolonization theme that's going to run through the next couple of decades too. 
Um, any thoughts on the historic context? Less of it this um, time. Yeah, the, 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 there's, there's a lot of very important stuff in there. Let's get into the characters of this novel. So we'll start off with the uh, detective because he's back after an incredibly long gap, much to the publisher's chagrin, Monsieur Hercule Poirot. And um, the readers, and the readers' chagrin. You've been absolutely. missed, Hercule. It's great to have you back. It is great to have him back. Do you have any particular Hercule Poirotisms? The uh, Xander, aka Lord Baron, sort of memorial part of the podcast. Any any particular good Poirot moments for you? No, I think this book again is quite lean um, on it. Um, I enjoyed uh, reading him. Um, what I took out of this one, though, is uh, Poirot seems to have become the go-to shoulder to cry on for all the ladies at the, the mansion. <laughs> Yes. So he, he receives a bevy of beautiful ladies who visit him, you know, after the murder to have a heart to heart with him about um, about John Christo and his death. Mm. So I, I, I thought that was quite interesting that they've um, they've pegged him as somebody that they can talk to privately. Poirot, yeah. And they all come in and say, I can trust your discretion, Mr. Poirot, if I tell you this, can't I? You know, so I, I thought that was um, that was that was maybe the most noteworthy thing. So for me. I agree. If you want to get into the vanity and particularity of Poirot, there was one little passage that struck out, stuck out to me uh, for Xander. Hercule Poirot flicked a last speck of dust from his shoes. He had dressed carefully for his luncheon party and he was satisfied with the result. He knew well enough the kind of clothes that were worn in the country on a Sunday in England, but he did not choose to conform to English ideas. He preferred his own standards of urban smartness. He was not an English country gentleman. He was Hercule Poirot, exclamation mark. He's, Fantastic. He makes, he makes his own rules, sartorial and otherwise. Yeah, um, he's immune to peer pressure. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, so let's get into the next character, I think, murder victim and wife, and then we'll get into the family that they're staying with in the country. So, Don, oh, Dr. John, oh, sorry. Let's, let's, let, we've got to address the two detectives as well, because, um, uh, okay, I know they're only minor characters. Oh, you go it, for it then. <laughs> Inspector Grange is presented as somebody who is easily confused and baffled and, and, <laughs> and just a little bit stupid. And I loved the introduction of Sergeant Clark, who mm -hmm. is a good-looking honey trap sent in to, in, yes. you know, get information out of the servants. But that's not the first time, right, is it? I think in Cards on the Table and, a, and maybe ABC Murders, we had younger, good-looking policemen who were sent in to charm, in particular the working-class ladies, right? He could get around the sort of the maidservants yeah. and get gossip. Well, so. I, I, what, what I thought... Um, it was, was worth mentioning is I don't know if you've seen See How They Run, which was sort yes. of like a Christie homage. Yes. Well, they've got the same character in that. They've got like a, a good looking police sergeant who's sent in to charm, you know, some of the, um, the, 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 the sort of the workers in the cinema at the time to get the backstory. And I just thought it's interesting because <laughs> obviously Christie's probably, you know, one of the first people to use this sort of idea of the, uh, the good looking policeman being sent in to chat up the, um, the staff. <laughs> By but any like means even necessary. Now, you know, yeah. they're still using it. So absolutely. Cool, cool. Okay. So let's get into John, Dr. John Christo. As you said, um, a Harley Street doctor. And when we meet him, he comes across as incredibly charming and urbane and so wonderful with the ladies, his patients. But actually, we realized from his internal monologue or from the, the, the third person writing that he hates it. He absolutely hates all these pampered, hypochondriac women. And he only does this so that he can fund his research work where he's trying to cure an obscure um, disease called Ridgeway's dis disease. And, 
you know, he feels very alive when he's in the hospital and he has this amazing, wonderful patient who he admires for being so full of life and so full of a willingness to fight the disease. So that's his, his intellectual life is really where he's most alive. We know he's been serially unfaithful and he's married a rather sort of plain, dutiful wife. But um, he's a fascinating character. I think you're absolutely right. This is the, the sentence or the couple of sentences I thought that were just wonderful. Um, hard, unremitting drudgery and few pleasures. But she wanted to live. She enjoyed life, just as he, John Christo, enjoyed life. It wasn't the circumstances of life they enjoyed. It was life itself, the zest of existence. Um, so that's basically John Christo describing his his poor patient in the hospital who may well die of her disease. But he does, I think he does come across as, we only see him for a very short time because then he's murdered, but he does feel this like very sort of charismatic, powerful, magnetic character. Um, yeah, and I think, um, Christy, I, I don't think, um, I, 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 Christy is trying to emphasize that to us because as he's dying, Poirot makes that statement, doesn't he? You know, I was there amongst all these people by the side of the pool, and yet the man who was dying was the one who was most full of life. He was the yeah. most engaging person there, even though he was about to die. So, like, Christie's constantly trying to emphasise to us that we should see him as a, a charismatic character, mm. you know, and, and take this opportunity. But what I found fascinating, and it, it, I was actually found it frustrating as I was as I was going through it, was um, it, like his relentless double standards. You know, I think he was a man who didn't really understand himself. He was very, um, I don't know what you would say, very instinctive in in what he wanted. So he has this um, very passionate affair at a young age with this famous actress. Mm. Um, and he decides that because she wants to pursue a career and wants him to follow her and he wants to have his own career separately, that he's just going to cut off all ties with her. So, And then he deliberately marries somebody who's the complete opposite. And then he finds that he is completely frustrated in that marriage because she isn't intellectually challenging him. But then when he meets a woman who does intellectually challenge him, he wants her to be just as submissive as his wife. You know, and it, yeah. it's like he, he, he he's never happy, you know, and I, I think he is somebody who's almost seeking to be challenged in his life. And I think that's part of what Christie's got across so well in in this portrayal of him as almost like this to use the cliche, an alpha male character. You know, yeah. he is somebody who needs to be challenged all the time, even though he wants to be on top. He still needs to be stretched and, and pushed. And it's a recipe you know? for, for a very frustrating life, as you say. He reminded me when I was reading him of there's a brilliant Irving Berlin song that was used with great comic effect in Boardwalk Empire called After You Get What You Want, You Don't Want It. <laughs> and the lyrics are, if I gave you the moon, you'd grow tired of it soon. You're like a baby, you want what you want when you want it. But after you're yeah. presented what you want, you get grow discontented. And yeah. it's basically that the whole song is like exactly what you said, that he wants someone exciting and challenging and independent, but he immediately wants to turn them into a worshipper. He wants to con conquer them almost. Yeah, he feels the exactly. need. Yeah. But I'm not I, even I, sure I, if it's misogynistic, it's just narcissistic. He yeah. he knows he's clever and he knows his work's important. He probably will cure this disease right if he lives. And hmm. it, 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 in a way, it's kind of just like brutally utilitarian. 
like mm. my happiness and work is more important than yours but yeah well just... I, I do think like um that's one of the the ways that agatha's conveyed um how charismatic he is and i think that's probably coming back to what you were saying at the start where it's based on somebody who she knew in her real life mm. you'd almost like recognize this um contradictory element of a successful person's nature part of what drives them is their desire to conquer everything and their frustration when they've conquered it you know they're, they're it's like that quote about alexander the great you know he wept because there were no more walls to conquer you know yeah. it's like you're never satisfied so I, I think she's done that quite well with this character and, and like i said i think um apart from poirot he's probably one of the most interesting male characters if not the most interesting male character that i've read yeah. In, uh, in a Poirot. I agree. And certainly the only one in this in this novel, for sure. So he has met and married Gerda Christo. Rather plain, gives the impression of being clumsy. She worries about everything. She idealizes John, blames herself for her pro- blames herself for her problems, even when it's he who is wrong, and inspires a sculpture by Henrietta called The Worshipper, which is described as being frightening as it has no face. This is Lucy Angertal talking about her. It really does make things difficult. And the worst of it is, is that she's so nice. Really, it seems odd sometimes that anyone so nice as Goethe is should be so devoid of any kind of intelligence. And if that is what they mean by the law of compensation, I don't really think that it's at all fair. And then there's a second quotation where John first sees um, the sculpture of his wife called the Worshipper. John looked at it unwillingly. For the first time, his anger and resentment became subordinated to his interest. A strange submissive figure, a figure offering up worship to an unseen deity, the face raised, blind, dumb, devoted, terribly strong, terribly fanatical. Um, thoughts on Gerd Christo in a non-spoiler way? This was the sort of aspect of John Christo that made me quite angry because I, I, I feel that he'd almost emotionally bulldozed her. I found it like very uncomfortable to read that passage at the start about the mutton. Where yes. You're like listening to her internal monologue of the self-doubt and she is paralyzed by fear. You know, And it's almost like any decision she made rather than doing nothing wrong. would have been the right one. But yeah. she is so paralyzed by making the wrong decision, she does nothing. And in the end, she just opens herself up to criticism. And like you, you listen to him come in and say, oh, my God, this mutton is cold. Why haven't you sent it back down? And you're thinking, like, you're the one to blame here. Will you just stop gaslighting her? It's, you know, it is. We can talk about it later on. We, we get like more of her internal monologues and she does have a bit more depth. You know, and I think this is a, a theme that um, Agatha has in quite a few of her novels where like, you get these very placid characters, but you realise that they've got depths to them. You know, they're, they're, they're superficially quite calm, but they have got depths. And she draws these characters time and again. She's done that a lot with young girls recently. So mm. young daughter in Evil Under the Sun, the not actually that young daughter um, who's a bit abandoned, was actually a young woman in The Moving Finger. She often has these women that are sort of seen as kind of quite pitiable and pathetic, but, you know, they're just fine. <laughs> but it's, yeah, you know, well, they've yeah. been beaten down by others. And the, yeah, you're right. The, the Gerda character just does feel like, I mean, her husband's not beating her. But she does feel yeah. like a victim of spousal abuse because he's done such a number on her self-confidence. She's literally paralyzed with fear over what she should do with lunch. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, it, 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 it is. Um, I, I find that an uncomfortable passage to read. And I think Agatha's written it that way deliberately. So mm, I agree. 
Okay, we'll probably get more into it at the end, but let's get into two of the women that uh, that John Christo has been having affairs with. The first, and as you said, the, the sort of the original love or not love of his life was Veronica Cray, who has now gone on to become a very famous movie actress. She is very beautiful. She's very not very narcissistic, equally narcissistic as John Christo. Um, she wanted Christo to abandon his early career and follow her to Hollywood. He rejected her. Um, they've both gone on to some success. He, she has now come back to England and has taken up a cottage next to the country house where they're all going to be staying. And on the pretext of not having enough matches or needing to borrow matches from her neighbours, crashes a dinner party basically to, to create an opportunity to see John Christo again and hopefully rekindle that early romance. I think you've summed her up quite well. Uh, I think where I would say this, she would tie in as a character would be a reflection on how social attitudes have changed. Mm. Because I think that um, it was written, she was written um, intentionally as a very negative character because she desired to have this career independently of John Christo and expected John Christo to follow her when she pursued her career in Hollywood. They make a great deal about how egotistical she is. Mm. And you're sort of looking at it now and going, what's really wrong with a woman wanting to be successful? Whereas back then, it, the fact that she wanted to subordinate her her boyfriend at the time, her fiancé at the time, is, is almost presented as a reason, a valid reason why John Christo should end the relationship. And I'm like, I'm not, I'm not sure that holds up as well all... now in the 21st century. You know, no. you know so it's just a, an example of the sort of the changing social attitudes. Really. I think probably says more about, and also says a lot about both of their narcissism, narcissisms, mm. narcissism on both parts. Um, because I was thinking a lot about Agatha Christie, like this incredibly successful woman in her own right. And yet, you know, she didn't demand her husband give up his ar- archaeological career or vice versa. She would go to digs that he was on and, and support him there. And he presumably was very pleased to support her in her work as well. And it seemed to work rather well. Um, mm. In sharp contrast to the first marriage where I think Archie Christie did have some issue with her being the breadwinner. But in a, in a sense, maybe this yeah. is... Uh, well, of, we, we, we have seen this yeah. theme before in previous Christie's, though. We had this in Death on the Nile, didn't we, where yeah. um, you you have the man resenting being subordinate to the more successful wife. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's felt that you can't have two strong people in a relationship. One has to be weak and the other one has to be strong. I mean, I think we saw it again with appointment with death, didn't we? Um, or yes. a bright young thing in there, the doctor. Um, she uh, decides that her last relationship didn't last because they both wanted to be successful professionals um, mm. and she needed somebody who was going to be a bit more subordinate to her because you couldn't have two strong characters in a relationship. So it's something, and I, I, I do feel it, maybe it's not as much of a reflection on Christie um, for all the problems that we have with her because of the time she was writing in, um, but is a reflection of the problems that we have with the time that she was writing in and how social attitudes have changed. Yeah, I agree. Um, but it is interesting. And I think part of what makes this book so compelling is we have not one, not two, but three people who really put their careers first. So we've got John Christo, mm. who's been very single-minded. Um, Veronica Cray, equally single-minded and successful. Good for her. But we also have Henrietta Savanake, who is one of the many Angatel cousins that we're going to get into. And she is the current person that John Christo is having an affair with. And it's, in, it's implied that maybe this is more than a fling. She is a sculptor, 
um, a cousin of Sir Henry Angertel. Um, She is kind. I mean, she's kind to Gerda when she sees Gerda feels left out or awkward. She really goes out of her way um, to make her feel included and, and special. Do you think that is out of pity? No, I don't. Well, let's get into that. And I think we'll have to get into that in the spoilerful section, probably. Okay, all right. But she's also, she's also unscrupulous and she loves her work. She loves her art. There's a wonderful kind of passage where she talks about the act of creation and how things seep into them and, and you can't sort of keep them out. Maybe this is how Agatha felt. Queer thought, Henrietta, how things can seep into you without your knowing it. She hadn't been listening, not really listening. And yet knowledge of Doris's cheap, spiteful little mind had seeped into her mind and had unconsciously influenced her hands. So the, the prattle of the person she's modelling in clay has influenced the sculpture. And I, I thought what was fantastic about that was the way that at the start of that whole passage, she's said, I've been looking for this perfect blank stare in a beautiful face mm. so that I can create this model of this mythological character, this blind servant girl, you know, who encompassed all this. And she sees it on the street and goes, this person caps, captures it perfectly. And then she tells herself while all this is going on, I'm, you know, I'm not being affected by this. I'm able to just reflect back to her the conversation while I get on with my work. And then at the end of it, she's happy with it all and, and, and she's got it all. And then she finds after like a, a day or a few hours that she can't anymore. The, the, the woman has actually worn her down with mm. all the rattling and she destroys <laughs> the work of art because... And it, it was great just seeing that um, that that sort of tortured artist element. I think it, it, it's tying into what you were saying about was this just part of what Agatha felt as an artist herself? Yeah. The dedication that she's got in this book is to a couple of friends that she had. Let me just pull it up for Larry and Dana with apologies for using their swimming pool as a scene of a murder. And I think <laughs> like the Larry in the dedication he says I, I know exactly when she started writing it because we have a crossroads exactly the same as they have in the book with several paths and i just she was staying with us for a weekend and i saw her standing at the center of the crossroads and she was like well what if all the characters all came up the different paths at the same time and stood in this scene and she said and she spent the rest of the weekend walking up and down all the different paths <laughs> that we have to it and yeah. you just see, like, it's almost like, there you go, that's the artist. You know, she's got the idea. And her daughter, Rosalind, found that this was one of her favourites. And yes. it was because she felt she'd got an explanation of why Agatha got so wrapped up in writing, you know, and maybe didn't spend as much time with her teenage daughter in her formative years as the teenage daughter would have liked. You know, yeah. So. And there's a wonderful passage. It, often with Agatha Christie books, and particularly Hercule Poirot, he kind of announces he did it, and then the book very kind of abruptly ends. I mean, I remember reading Murder on the Orient Express for the first time, thinking there's literally like three sentences after the explanation, and it's over. It, like, what? Whereas this book has quite a long almost epilogue or coda. And really what that epilogue is about is about the value of work. And for people who are obsessed with their work, how very little can distract them from it. And it comes from the perspective of Henrietta, who is the artist here, the sculptress. Mm. And I really feel that is Agatha speaking for herself. And at some point, she's almost apologizing for sculpting what has just happened, because that's the only way she can process it. And but almost it's more that I am an artist. This is what I do. And although this might seem exploitative, I cannot be other than I, as what I am. 
And mm. I think that's probably Agatha sort of apologizing to people in her life saying, like, I know that I've used bits and bobs of all of you, but this is what I do and I can't do anything mm. else. Like, it's literally a compulsion. Yeah. I tortured and, when the mute is upon me. This is what yeah. I must do. So, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because not in this book, but obviously we mentioned in the last podcast that Rosalind's husband had just been shot down and killed mm. in the Battle of Normandy. And... In the following book and, and books thereafter, when she really does go through the impact of World War II, we are going to see again and again people who are young pilots who are dead, young, specifically Royal Air Force men who mm. have died. And I wonder if it's almost like a foreshadowing where Agatha's like, I'm really sorry, Rosalind, and to all of you reading this, but this happened and I cannot, I have to talk about this now. I'm going to have to write about this because things seep into me and the mm. only way I can move forward is to talk, is to kind of write through them. Mm. Um, so I, I really love the book for, I think this is as close as we get to Agatha talking about what it is to have that compulsion of artistic genius. Mm. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it's there. I think, uh, I think we see it in there. You know, it, it's a character. And I think like, just to go off on a tangent, I would say that's one of the reasons why I would include this book in top tier is because like some of the books that Agatha's written that I've really enjoyed reading, I thought have been good. You know, she doesn't always stick the landing gracefully. You know, mm. so like the sad Cypress, she just like wraps it up. Oh, don't worry, dear, we'll book you into a sanatorium and everything will be fine. And you're like, it's not really as graceful an ending as I would have liked to have uh, have seen. And in others, like um, Appointment with Death, we have like that full chapter at the ballet at the end, and you're like, what is all this waffle about? It's- <laughs> Wait till you get to Taken at Flood. That's got a horrible final. And you know, like, as I pointed but, out. But she does it well in this one. So yeah, I think it, no, it's it, brilliant. Like, yeah. Okay, okay, well, let's get into the Angatel family, of whom Henrietta is a part. And the country house at which they're all staying is not, in fact, Ainswick, which is the beloved family seat. The owner of the hollow is Sir Henry Angatel. He has married his distant cousin, Lucy. I don't think I really have much to say about Sir Henry other than that he conveniently owns a whole bunch of guns. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the one thing uh, I think is worth mentioning is, is that he is a former diplomat. Yes. Because they do talk a bit about this, um, about the, 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 the diplomatic angle. And I, I, I want to discuss that in relation to his wife, Lucy. The, the charming Lucy Angatel, who she is Lucy Lady Angatel, sociable, charismatic. She has a very sort of flaky, ditzy sort of persona. But in a sense, this allows her to get away with everything. She can charm the birds from the trees, apparently. She also, apparently, um, is just like me. So this is what I want to read out. Since she was a woman of disconcertingly rapid thought processes, Lady Angatel, as was her invariable custom, commenced the conversation in her own mind, supplying Midge's answers out of her own fertile imagination. The conversation was in full swing when Lady Angatel flung open Midge's door. And so, darling, you really must agree that the weekend is going to present difficulties. Eh? Hua? Midge grunted inarticulately, aroused thus abruptly from a satisfying and deep sleep. To me, this feels like Agatha knew this character. I mean, it's, it's so, so <laughs> true to me. Um, but well, anyway, like, like, this, <laughs> go on. This, is, this, this, is, this is the passage that really is important because it's how Lucy operates and how we will see her operating in the novel. Yet even as she voiced the thought to herself, she was aware of the answer. Lucy, Lucy Angatel was smiling, and as Midge looked at her, she felt the extraordinary pervasive charm that Lucy had wielded all her life, and that even now, at over 60, had not failed her. Because of it, people all over the world, foreign potentates, ADCs, government officials, had endured inconvenience, annoyance, and be- bewilderment. 
It was the childlike pleasure and delight in her own doings that disarmed and nullified criticism. Lucy had but to open those wide blue eyes and stretch out those fragile hands and murmur, oh, but I'm so sorry, and resentment immediately vanished. And that's just kind of, that is its own kind of narcissism, right? Like this Mm. idea that the world will bend to your wishes just if you lay lay on enough creamy ditzy charm. And maybe I'm I'm reading too much into this character, but I, I was struck when I was reading it. I can't remember um, which biography I was reading, but I, I, it, it was somebody who'd been a diplomat, and they said like, when when you're a diplomat, you have to have uh, an excellent line in small talk because you will spend several hours a day dealing with very serious issues, but you still have to meet these people socially and try and engage yeah. with them socially. So you'll often around the dinner table end up discussing things like, what's your favorite end of the bathtub when you're in the bath? And you need <laughs> to have that, that almost surreal ability to lapse into these trivial conversations, but still be effortlessly, effortlessly charming. And I, I got the feeling that the reason that Sir Henry was probably quite a successful diplomat is because his wife has got that gear. She is able, because she's so intelligent and charming and charismatic, to have these conversations with people where she is, you know, two or three steps ahead of them conversationally and they're playing catch up, you know, and they only realize what they're, they're they're actually where the conversation is going when it's too late. They're already there discussing it. You know, I, I, I find she, she was a fascinating character. They mentioned um, in the All About Agatha podcast that she reminds them of Lady Bracknell. And, and I, I'd stick her in this um, this group of uh, fascinating older women that Agatha's written. I mean, we were talking about um, the lady in Towards Zero as well as being somebody mm. who, who says what she likes and likes what she says. And like... This is it. She's she's written a, a, another great dame of English literature. You know, I agree. With all her international travel, you know, she's fifty six at the time of publication. Lucy Angertel's just over sixty, and uh, mm. yeah, maybe this is a little bit Agatha too. I think she's a, I think she's probably one of my top five favorite characters in Agatha Christie. Lucy Angertel, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, who hasn't got like the title detective or a novel based around them definitely yeah. you know i like, didn't realize not, that sounded really narcissistic too because i just said she's a bit like me yeah oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's your podcast pina if you can't be narcissistic here where can you be <laughs> just, everyone's narcissistic so far right so john christo is well not gerda but john is henrietta is veronica well, certainly well, is and well, i would well, argue that lucy angatel kind of is <laughs> Well, what, 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 what I would say is the only people who find other people interesting are all narcissists. The one person who doesn't seem to be a narcissist, Greta, oh, sorry, Gerda, Gerda is the one yeah. that everybody looks down on. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got Henry and Lucy Angtel who own the house. And then of their many cousins, one is Henrietta, who we've already discussed. We then have Edward Angatel, who is a distant cousin of Henry and person who inherited the family's beloved house Ainswick, where they all grew up spending summer holidays. And Lucy Angertel grew up there. He's seen as, I think, quite a bookish guy. He's happy just sort of pottering around his country house, reading books, um, mm. seems rather shy, very overshadowed by John Christo. He has been in love with Henrietta for many years, I think asked her to marry him three or four times. And she turned him down and is obviously now having an affair with John Christo. So he very much is the spurn lover. And he owns this amazing, massive country house. And maybe we can pair him with Midge Hardcastle, who is another of the cousins, but comes from one of the impoverished lines of the family and actually has to work a job 
in a Dog. shop. She's a, she's a shop sales assistant and she has to deal with unpleasant women being unpleasant to her. And all the family pity her and, you know, Edward will say very kind of naive things to her like, Why, how can you stick it? Why do you put up with this job? And, she's, and she loses her rag with him and says, because I've got to earn money, you foolish people, you know. And so I rather like Midge because she refuses financial aid from this family. And she takes pride in the fact that, no, she's going to face reality and work in this shop. So... Eventually, I think Edward rather admires her and sort of feels maybe they could be a an item. But um, yeah, well, they're interesting I mean, contrasts. There's the old money and the kind of yeah, romantic it, old and, money and the new reality of post-war Britain where you've got to get and, a bloody job. And, and, and Agatha's written this Edward Angertel character before. We we saw him as the elder brother in Five Little Pigs. He yes. is very much this... Um, <laughs> Romantic. The, the the landed gentry, but um, on the wane. Taxes are beginning to bite. You know, land isn't as profitable as it used to be. You know, but they're quite happy with that. They will just live off the income that they mm. gather, gather from their estate. They're not going to try and innovate in any way to try and change things up. And unlike Five Little Pigs, I don't think this is represented too negatively. It's just stated as a fact. This is it. Yeah, He's quite comfortable. Yeah, it is what it is. But I think there's real admiration yeah. for Midge. Um, and yes, then the final, yeah. yeah, the final Angertel is David Angertel, who was a student, also bookish, but in a much more ideological way, rather antisocial, rather contemptuous of the other Angertels, probably thinks he's rather yeah. superior to them intellectually and politically. Uh, he, he is the perfect revolutionary, isn't he? Because he's mm -hmm. disenfranchised and overeducated. So he is just spoiling <laughs> to start a revolution. Absolutely. The, the, the book quote I have for him is, David had come to the hollow in a spirit of considerable unwillingness. Until now, he had never met either Sir Henry or Lady Angertel, and disapproving of the Empire, capital E, generally, he was prepared to disapprove of these relatives of his. Edward, whom he did not know, he despised as a dilettante. The remaining four guests he examined with a critical eye. Relations, he thought, were pretty awful, and one was expected to talk to people, a thing which he hated doing. Which, frankly, I think is interesting on two parts. Number one, because he mentions the empire. And as I say, I think we are going into a sort of decolonization period and that will become more of an issue along with the war impact. And mm. secondly, because uh, for many people at Christmas, they will express the same view of having to talk to relations who they think are pretty awful. So Brilliant. <laughs> it's appropriate for the time of the year. Um, the final character is Gudgeon the Butler. Sorry. <laughs> Very protective of Lady Angertel, a comedy butler straight out of Jews and Worcester. There's a few instances where uh, Lady Angertel describes him as as feudal, which mm. I thought like uh, uh, has nailed the idea of this butler um, and the Jeeves character from Jeeves and Worcester down down yes. pat. I mean, Bertie Worcester always describes Jeeves as feudal as well. And I think what's interesting about that is is the way that phrase just captures the the concept that the butlers first and only duty was to the household. Like they were prepared to break the law. I mean, they do it in quite a trivial way in Jeeves and Worcester. Mm. You know, like um, Jeeves will help Bertie get around paying his five pound fine to the courts and things like that. But in this, you know, you see Gudgeon will start shifting guns about, um, you know, at the behest of um, Lady Angertel. Um, so like they, they are, you know, devoted to the household. Um, and that it, it's quite dark later on. But it, it, it's initially we're introduced in, in, in quite a comical way. It just follows on from this passage where you were um, talking about Lady Angertel just bursting in on Midge at like six in the morning, you know, <laughs> to announce her idea. And, and she decides that she's going to make Midge a cup of tea because it's a perfect time for a cup of tea. So she puts the kettle on 
But then she gets quite tired and goes to bed. And then we get that great aside down in the kitchen where um, Gudgeon comes in and the cook goes, oh, I see you've burnt out another kettle, Gudgeon. And he goes, yes, don't worry, I've, I've replaced it. Um, you know, so Lady Angatel won't know any different. And uh, the cook's going, how many is that that we've gone through? And he, he says something like, oh, it's six this month, but don't worry, we keep a good stock of them. So our ladyship's never never bothered about the, the, the kettles being wasted. And you, like, it's a great comic scene, but you see the devotion that the butler has to the, the family, um, you know, just presented quite concisely. So I, I like Gudgeon as a character. I love Gudgeon as a character. And he's, yeah, he's very much the double act with Lucy. And yeah, they're just phenomenal. Really interesting. Okay, so let's maybe get into what has and hasn't held up well to the modern reader before getting into the adaptations. So what do we have in this novel? Um, We have the colour question. Interesting. And that's what I said. I think this is the first novel where I'm really... Since the sort of early 1920s South African set novels, where we're really dealing with empire and the colour question. Um, So this is a quote. She's put, this is Midge thinking about Lucy. She's put deadly enemies next to each other at the dinner table and run riot over the colour question. So I do think there's an element at which, I don't know, suddenly we're seeing race not as this kind of weird one-liner note of anti-semitism or mention of the negro or whatever but it's it's seeping into things a bit more maybe i'm overreading mm. into that um i don't think you are and uh, uh, like we'll, we'll get on to others that, w- that we come later on uh, and i do think i think this is the book that is most severely criticized for its regressive commentary i think they mark it down by three points really and that feels yeah and I, well no i think it, it it's possibly it's quite fair and I think one of the points that they make um, is the bit where we get onto when we're talking about the shopkeeper. Oh, the anti-Semitism, um, the, yeah. Yeah, because of the context of what will have come out. I mean, you, you've made this point in an earlier podcast as well. Like, Agatha was aware of German attitudes towards the Jews. Like, she'd been speaking to people pre-war who were members of the Nazi party. It's mentioned in her diaries, you know. Um, so to still have this... You I know, see context-related marking because there's definitely yeah. far worse anti-Semitism in earlier books. But it is shocking to see it when we've just had these like long historic context sections of like the past or four or five podcasts yeah, listing events of the Holocaust, and you think really? Yeah, we, we've just had the liberation of a lot of these concentration camps, so this mm. will have been front and center, you know. And yeah. I think they were saying like it, they think that this is sort of like a turning point um, because you see this Jewish reference a lot less in fact i think this might be the last one that they I say so. because they, they 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 say that the american publishers now saying like you can't have this in anymore this is just it's not acceptable um so and it ties back to that and then there were none and the book title in there and how you know it had to be changed for the american audience mm. anyway it's really we can start talking about- it's it is really disappointing that it's the external thing of the publishers telling her that for commercial reasons not mm. her coming to the own conclusion Let's just say for the reader, if you haven't read it yet, there is Midge, who works for a shopkeeper. And unfortunately, we're getting back to really 1920s Agatha, where commercially savvy people are typically Jewish and they're marked by being harsh. I'm thinking of the hairdresser in which book is it where someone works? Is it, is it the murder in the clouds, death in the clouds, where the lady yes, works for a hairdresser yeah. and he's, he's, he's really, he's got a French name, but he's really Jewish and therefore he's harsh. And we, it just feels like we're back in the 1920s, which is what I found really disappointing because it's a very physical anti-Semitism. So anyway, let me find it. Um, 
So Edward asks Midge, is the woman who runs it pleasant and sympathetic to work for? I should hardly describe her as that. She's a Whitechapel Jewess with dyed hair and a voice like, voice like a corncrake. So, so far you could say, well, it's Midge being anti-Semitic. But then this is Agatha Christie in the third person narrative describing the same shopkeeper. A woman with a thick nose, henna red hair and a disagreeable voice was arguing with a stout and bewildered customer over some alterations to an evening ground. So it is just very, the thick nose, it's just, ah, oh, Agatha. Yeah. And we've already been told that, that she's Jewish. And we've also, we're, it, when we're in the, 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 the context of this, we're, we're listening to Edward's internal monologue where um, he's describing all these, what he considers nasty character traits because um, they're coming across as very money-grubbing and penny-pinching, you know. Mm. Um, and, and I'm looking at it, and as I was reading it, I was going... Like, there's no reason for this person to be Jewish. Yeah. We can make this statement about any shopkeeper. And OK, we can make this a bit comical. The, the religion or the race element doesn't need to come into it. And actually, these are probably attributes that most successful small business owners have. You know, yeah. they, they do haggle, you know, about the price of something. And if they can make a few extra pennies on a deal, they will do because, you know, every penny makes a pound. So, but it's, you know, it's even more sharply in contrast in a book, which is about people who are very passionate about their careers. So you've got yeah. John Christo, Henrietta and Veronica, who, especially that, you know, John Christo and Henrietta are really being admired for being so passionate about their careers. And mm. yet you've got the shopkeeper who's running a successful business. Mm. Um, but she's not to be admired because she's yeah. money grubbing and she has a thick nose. It's it's really I can see why yeah. they adopted a lot given when it was written because it is it just feels like something out of. And I, I would path. say like it really does. It's horrible. This, like that, I I would be open to knocking it down a tier just on 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 the basis of this because I am disappointed because you do see her having some progressive attitudes and her mm. being quite um the, the way that she's writing some of her women characters is very interesting you know she's challenging them and you can see um how how social attitudes are changing and and for the better becoming more positive and i do get the feeling like with her being a very intelligent woman uh, and in the position that she was in particularly if she's having people explain this to her like I, i'm sure that she's going to have this knowledge at her fingertips and I almost wonder why sometimes she didn't just um, make it appeal to mm. a broader base and, and remove some of these items. And I can only put it down to the fact that she is just reflecting British attitudes at the time. This would have been seen as perfectly acceptable. So you know, this this is, would have yeah. been a common stereotype uh, that most of her audience would have plugged into. So and... this is an absolutely key point, isn't it? Because this is Britain in 1946. Mm. We have gone through the Holocaust, but the, the fact that the Holocaust happened is really just coming to light, right? There's a year ago or when she was writing this, the concentration camps are liberated. You start seeing those horrific photographs. You start getting the Nuremberg trials. But this is the same Britain that really wasn't overly keen on accepting Jewish immigrants when they were trying to flee from um, mm. Nazi-occupied Europe. And this, what you know, she is at the height of her popularity. She is selling millions and millions of copies of books. And people reading this are not having the same reaction that we are, at least not on this side of the Atlantic. So mm. this tells you something about the absolute, just kind of like, what's the word? Like anti-Semitism, it's like cockroaches. Like it, it cannot be defeated. It's always there under the surface waiting mm. to pop out when you least expect it. 
And in general, the incidence of anti-Semitism in these books has gone down since the 1920s. But then every now and then, when you think you're over it and you're free and clear, another little yeah. needless it, bit of racism pops up and you're just like, it, it's if, difficult. if going through the Holocaust can't, yeah. can't get rid of this, then this must have been so, and probably still is, right? It's so deep yeah, rooted in society I, I think so. that it, it's still it, there. It's difficult to sort of give this the sort of um, serious the, the amount of time it Rapidly. needs to have a serious yeah. discussion. But like, I, I think if I was going to try and summarise it um, and, and why I, I'm so disappointed is I think that that will always be there because there's always this element of a society where it feels threatened. And so it picks on minorities to create this sense of otherness. Um, to try and create an internal cohesion to protect itself. I understand that. But like what I like to see is people who are in these positions of power, rather than leaning into it like demagogues, they actually take a stand or at least don't lean into it. They, they because it's unnecessary. Like all the elements that she's got in the the, the this character, they could be like the, the shop owner doesn't need to have a thick nose, yeah. you know, and, and, and she doesn't need to be a Jew. She, she could just be a, a Cockney or a Bromley or anybody from England who's just um, very commercially driven. And we can make that work as a comic element, you know, like um, Ronnie Barker did in Open All Hours. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it, 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 it's not impossible to do. And I, I just feel like um, it's lazy. It's lazy stereotyping. And, and she was better than that. And that's why it's disappointing because you don't see her. Like you see her when she can do it well. She doesn't stereotype characters. Like some of the female, the complicated female characters that she's written, you know, they don't have that lazy stereotyping. And that's why it's disappointing, I think. It's, but anyway. We, what uh, I'd love to know is, I mean, I think part of my defense of Agatha in the 20s and 30s is, yes, she was racist and anti-Semitic in some of her work. But there were people who were way worse, like mass market authors. Mm. And, you know, it was a particularly virulent time. I and mean, actually her novels stand up better than most because it is often a throwaway thing. Like if you took away that little description of the Jewish shopkeeper, nothing in the book would really change other than it being improved and far better. Mm. But if you take a lot of those other really famous authors of the period, you can't take it out because it's so woven into the fabric of it. So yeah. I always felt that you judged the author by the standard of the time and she was better than the standard of her time in the 20s and 30s, although still not mm. excusable or forgivable. But by 1946, with this sort of comment, I wonder if she's now worse than the standard of her time. I wonder if actually, if you read a sampling, say the top 10 fiction novels of the year, whether she would come across as very old fashioned in her racism. And I suspect, I don't know, maybe I'll do some research before the yeah, next I, 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 I think she's probably still of the time. Like bang uh, on I, the benchmark, basically. Yeah. Uh, I, well, like I think she probably might even still be progressive in her portrayal of some of the, the female characters that she's Well, definitely, got. yeah, on the feminism you know, side. But like, I am... Um, I think she's probably she's probably still off the time. With yeah, her, just on her the anti-Semitism question, I just really wonder. Um, yeah, no, I would still say the same because I, I don't think maybe the impact of the concentration camps has really hit British audiences um, in the way that it, it, it would in later years. You know, it's almost like you had to wait for like um, the World War TV series and things like that for it to, you know, really be thrust into the faces of, of the British public. Um, mm. So I, I don't know. It's like I, I, I'm not around at the time, so I, I can only like look, look back at it. But I, I certainly think that this was um, it was lazy. And like what I think as well is it, like we've got 
parts where she's leaned into racial stereotypes um, for humor. So she did this in Sad Cyprus, and uh, like I mentioned it back then with the characterization of the Irish yes. uh, nurse in there. And I, I didn't find it tremendously offensive. I can understand why some people would. Um, but there's a, mal- there's a malice to this, 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 this passage describing the thick nose and the money grabbing that I didn't see in Sad Cyprus when she was talking about it. And OK, it, it was partially belittling and playing up to the, the sort of like the, 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 the jokey part about them being storytellers. But this has got real malice to it, you know, mm. where you're describing this person as 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 beneath the the people around it because of her, her commercial attitudes, and it, it it's uncomfortable reading, you know. Yeah, so I agree, I agree, definitely. Well, I think more of this to come, actually, more of this to come in future novels. But as you say, everything pre and post Holocaust, you look at with a different eye because post Holocaust, it's kind of like. There's no reason, there's no excuse to mm. not know where this leads. And yeah. it's extreme. Um, I mean, I, I, I suppose we want to move on to that. I, I did have a couple of other points that I wanted to talk about. You know, I, I should have mentioned in social change, but they might come into the progressive and regressive side of things. So yeah, yeah, um, ladies are wearing furs, and that is seen as like a, a badge of wealth and status, you know, yes, which yes. I'm not sure would be considered the same. Now, or even if it was, I'm not sure we would be writing about it and uh, it being mentioned. And this is the first mention I think I've ever seen of unmarked police cars. So really? Yeah. Yeah. We've we've got the police now tailing some of the suspects in souped-up bangers um, because uh, there's this great passage where Henrietta is saying, you know, I've got this supercharged sports car. And I should be able to outrun that banger, but I've not managed to lose it for the last couple of hours, you know. And and she's going, and I know that the police have got like these souped up cars, cars. Yeah, yeah, these cars that they fitted with more powerful engines. Absolutely. So I, I thought, you know, that that was quite interesting, you know. So talking about Agatha marking the sort of um, technological changes. Yeah, they're not, the they're, not, they're not jumping on trains hither and thither. It is much more about motoring places. Yeah, which is, and the demo, demo, democratizing of motoring for sure whereas in the secret of chimneys it was just the sort of the posh aristocratic sort of slightly batty daughter of the earl who would have a car now everyone has cars and the middle classes have cars and so do the police okay let's go into the adaptations before we get into the spoiler filled part of this podcast so christie adapted the book into a very successful stage play in 1951 but as was typical took out akio poirot from the narrative which is interesting, actually, because Agatha Christie tells us in her autobiography that her daughter didn't think she should have dramatized the book because most of the interest is in the internal, it's in the way the characters are set up and how they think internally. Yeah, we get a lot of internal monologues. Yeah, exactly. So but nonetheless, it was actually pretty commercially successful. Um, we have a single televisual adaptation, which was the 2004 episode of the David Suchet Hercule Poirot series shown on ITV in the United Kingdom. Um, And it has an all-star cast, as many of these later ones do. We have the legendary actress Sarah Miles as Lady Lucy Angatel, and she's just brilliant. Uh, Megan Dodds as Henrietta Savinake, Jonathan Cake as John Christo, Lisette Anthony as Veronica Clay under a peroxide wig, and wonderful casting of Edward Fox as Gudgeon, who's just so good. And I watched it recently, and I just thought it was um, absolutely superb. 
And actually, it's very faithful, even to quoting lines of dialogue. They do change very subtly the ending, but not sort of dramatically in terms of the plot architecture. Um, and they get rid of the character of David Angertel. But a lot of the ca- the dialogue's just lifted straight from the, the novel. And yeah, Sarah Mars and, and Edward Fox as Lucy and uh, Gudgeon was just joy and a thing of beauty. Have you seen this one? I have, yeah. I mean, I think I would largely agree with you. Um, I um, I wasn't a big fan of Sarah Miles. I think she's a great actress, but oh, I would have liked to have seen my Lady Angertel as more vociferous, more okay. outspoken, and, and 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 stealing more scenes. And I, I think she um, she wasn't bombastic enough in my mind's oh, no. eye. Lady oh, Angertel was a much more bombastic character, but I thought it was a very good adaptation. Um, uh, they weren't as hot on it on the All About Agatha podcast, and they thought that um, the Henrietta character um, should have been more um, more commanding on screen. But I, I didn't find that myself. I, oh, I enjoyed no, I think it. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was good. Yeah. Um, and I, I thought um, Edward Fox was very good as Gudgeon. Um, uh, it was great where you saw that scene where they were out for target practice. And uh, you can see Gudgeon <laughs> knows all about the guns. And then as soon as the police inspector turns up, um, he, he's like, Gudgeon, you've handed me um, an automatic and you told me it was a revolver. And he's like, oh, I don't really know what all these guns are about. And, you know, Gudgeon, <laughs> you old fraud, you're lying. You know, we we've know missed, you're lying. We've missed a great alternate universe, Jason Worcester, haven't we, with, with Edward Fox? He, no, it, 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 yeah, he's, 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 he's brilliantly, he's brilliantly written. And like the changes that they've made, I don't think the story suffered from them at all. No. There's um, a bit where Poirot finds the murder weapon. That's changed. And I think it's changed for the better because I think mm-hmm. it um, actually explains that bit a bit more. Um, whereas in the book, I, I didn't quite see it myself, but I saw it straight away when it was presented um, visually. The David character, the David Angertel character, he's superfluous, I think. Absolutely. In, in, agree. In the book. So like, it, it's interesting social commentary and uh, it gives Lady Angertel a chance for a speech later on, which is quite entertaining, you know, <laughs> and completely flummoxes her husband, which is great to read, but it's not needed, you know, and I think they've done a really good job with the adaptation. I, I, I agree. I think this is delightful. It's one of the better ones, and I would heartily encourage people to both read the book and watch the adaptation. So we'll leave our spoiler-free discussion there. We hope you've enjoyed it and attempted to read the book if you haven't already. And next time we will be talking about Taken at the Flood, which if you've been wanting some real commentary on what World War II was like for people living in England and what it was like to come back to a country that was completely changed, then that is the novel for you. It is full of amazing social change and commentary. So we hope you'll tune in next time and stay tuned after the end credits music for some spoiler-filled discussion. Okay, folks, we're back, and now we're going to be spoiler replete. Um, oh, what to say about this book? I think so, you, you need to get your soapbox now and explain to me why the plotting was so bad, because I thought it was marvellous. Because there's no plotting. There is literally no plotting. And and Hercule Poirot says this again and again in the novel. He says, you know, all the time I'm presented with clues are offered up to me, and I try and investigate them, and they run into dead ends. 
There is no did actual plotting to follow. The point of did the book is there that, is no plotting. If no, there is did no you not think that mystery, was all her, all her being, um, Poirot being deliberately misled? Did you not find that intellectual ba battle between the anger tales and Poirot interesting in any way at all? You didn't... No, I found it as frustrating as Poirot because I read the books for the social interest. I read the books also for the characters. So the characters are phenomenal. But then I also read it to see if I can work out the solution. And I found myself absolutely empathetic with Poirot. He was just getting so, more and more frustrated. This is not, in fact, a murder mystery. This is a good character-based novel. I think if you treat it as not a murder mystery, then you're fine. I've got a little thing in my notes here, which is And you wouldn't, you and wouldn't say no that... And there are no clues I've written down. There are no clues. Yeah, yeah but well, there are loads of clues. You know, we're, we're given lots. Like, I, do, do you not think that, like there was the element of the double bluff, you know, where they, 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 they'd given you the murderer and the murder? And, and 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 the setting, and then disproved it. You know, almost like towards zero. You know, where where no, I think there are no. Double. I think there there are no plot mechanics. There are literally no plot mechanics to judge. Okay, all right. Well, I I didn't see that. I mean, I I, I would think say we explain that... to people what the solution is before we start disagreeing about it violently. Well, there so is a spoiler any, section, if, so if they, any, they if must know. <laughs> if anyone's listening and hasn't read the novel. And it hasn't worked out from what Bean has just said. <laughs> Basically, no there is no murder mystery. Akil Poirot stumbles across a swimming pool where a wife looks like she's shot her husband out of jealousy that he's cheating on her. And that is actually what happened. Everything else in the following 180 odd pages is just faff. Faffing about. Well, I, I think you're being unfair. <laughs> I don't and think I, I'm being unfair. I, I, I really I think, don't. I don't think this so, is a murder mystery. I really don't. I think this is like um, a book like a Mary Westmacott. I don't think this should literally be in the reread. <laughs> so, so for the subsequent 180 pages, you know, in the world, words of Russell Crowe, were you not entertained? entertained but in the way i'd be entertained by a comedy book or a social commentary book or a pg okay. woodhouse not by a murder uh, uh, mystery okay if you said All this, right. is, well, a, you said this uh, is like a family uh, drama slash pg woodhouse be like I'm yeah not, five out i'm of not five. hearing anything bad in what you're saying like i i i don't place these whodunits um I, I, I don't rank whodunits better than um, Jeeves and Worcester comedies, you know, for, for me, just no, no, because no. it's got an but element I, of murder I, mystery I, and it doesn't I, make it... No, uh, but I, I, you know, if, to quote Terry Gilliam, you know, if you go through the door, Mark, what's it? You expect to go through that door. When I pick up a Jeeves and Worcester, I know I'm getting one. I pick up an Agatha Christie murder mystery with Hercule Poirot in it. I should, I, I, I am the, the drab commercial reader. I want what I was promised. I want it to be what it says on the tin. This is not what it says on the tin. Well, perhaps I'm because I, I'm, I'm not as um, I'm not as tied <laughs> to this 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 plot mechanics requirement. I I found like that I was be uh, like Poirot and, and the poor old inspector. I was being taken down all these dead ends. And um, it turns to quite, shark. I mean, like I with Poirot, quite, like with this, when Lucy Hancock's just wandering around with a pistol in her egg basket, she says, I must have had a reason to pick up a pistol. Well, Damned if I know why. And Poirot's going, are you fucking kidding me? And I'm, I'm sitting there as reading going, are you fucking kidding me? But there is nothing to detect in this novel. It's like a meta novel. It's a novel of... Poirot solves the novel by figuring out why there's nothing to detect. And I guess, that, that, yes, that, that's no, a good but that, that, that is Poirot. It's boring to read. It's just, I mean, oh. 
how many how many Poirots have we had where Poirot has figured out the crime, not because he's found the evidence, but because he's understood the motivations and because he's understood the psychological motivations of and the people I involved. Am, sorry, the motivation. And then after he's found... Motivation is weak source. So someone that you're sleeping with, but that you know, I mean, Henrietta is very clear-eyed about John. She knows he's narcissistic and she knows he treats Gerda badly. Gerda kills John. The dying word is Henrietta, which is not to implicate Henrietta, but to say, Henrietta, please take care of Gerda. I'm sorry. I, if I, why would an entire family become accomplice to a murder to save some feckless, dumb, literally, you know, person they describe as a dumb cow? I just didn't buy any of it. I didn't buy that Henrietta would have done it. I certainly didn't buy that the rest of the family would start working towards her in this way. Nope, didn't but buy you, it. You, 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 you never saw the explanation that we were given in the book where Poirot explains how the family sort of like naturally coalesced around Henrietta to support her and what she was trying to do. And you didn't find that that was plausible. You didn't think that the fact no, that... No, didn't find Lady, it possible that people Lady would be Luke, accessed. Lady it's like Lucy. watching Easter. It's like watching EastEnders right now. It's like it's literally at the level of the Christmas episode of EastEnders. Well, I, 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 I'm fortunate in that I haven't watched EastEnders in about 25 years, and that well, was neither 25 I until this Christmas episode because my mum. 25 was years too it. recently, so like I'm not even remotely interested in it. I didn't buy that Henrietta would have done all of that for poor little Gerda, and I didn't buy that Lucy and everyone else, Lucy who loves Ainswick and propriety and blah blah blah, would have been accomplice to my but and, i totally buy you, that gudgeon would do what lucy wanted and you well, the I, only I, one I buy. I, I, gudgeon would do anything that lucy wanted and lucy's already been presented as somebody who is poirot-esque in her belief of her extrajudicial superiority and she has put family first and she will decide to do what is best for the family I mean, and, you know, and she's not and she's not capital crime at this point yeah, and she's not really bothered about uh, about it. She she is not. Um, she is almost feudal. Put it this way: if Lucy, if Lucy had been asked to not even cover up but commit a murder to save Ainswick, I would believe that. But the yeah. idea that she is doing this because basically everyone feels sorry for Gerda. Well, I, she's I not doing it. it because everybody feels sorry for Gerda. She's doing it because Henrietta has an, a, a, an affection for Gerda and wants to help her out. And you don't cover Lucy, up a murder because you have an affection for someone. That's just well, silly. Henrietta does, and everybody else falls in behind Henrietta. They're they're so, all willing to help because Hen Henrietta has decided this is the best course of action. And I mean, and Lucy is already there's that great passage where she's talking to her husband, and she explains why she would have killed John Christa to save Ainswick. You know, and she talks you all the way through it. And you're going, oh my god, she's done it. Well, you won't, but like normal people would be sitting there reading it, and going, <laughs> oh my god, she's done it. I'm abnormal, you know? apparently. Well, well it's the you side with. Are I you team Bina or are you team Pat? Because I think that the normal reader will be, yeah, great characters, really enjoyed it, fun read, but uh, it was not fun to detect. Um, to me, this is a deeply frustrating novel, ultimately. And I think we should probably agree to disagree, because I don't think we are going to agree on this one. I think it's either, do you find it credible, or do you not find it credible that this is where the characters do what they do? If you do find it credible, that initial moment that Henrietta decides to do what she does, then I think you probably do follow it through as you did. And I'm glad you enjoyed I, it. I, 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 would, I, I would like to add, in my own defence, I don't <laughs> believe that novels necessarily have to be credible if they are entertaining. 
because I've read many novels that are completely credible and not entertaining. And oh, I don't think they have any merits. There is a contradiction, though, because there's one thing to be like lightly entertaining. There's another well, thing yeah. where people praise this novel and say the characters are really fascinating and make sense. But, yeah, but if, we the, have a... if, if the strength of the novel is that the characters are believable and credible and make sense and are fascinating, then what they do has to follow from that sensible characterization, right? They can't yeah, just then yeah. start doing gonzo shit. No, but... But what I would say is, like, we are reading works of fiction. And when it comes to this um, factual credibility, we, we, we have a sliding scale. Uh, uh, we're on a grey area. And some people will find things far more acceptable than others. And that, that is subjective. So, like, uh, uh, like, when I was at university, somebody told me a great anecdote about a guy they used to watch westerns with. You know, like the spaghetti yeah. westerns. And he couldn't watch them. He found them totally unbelievable because they were supposed to be set in Texas. But the geological formations of the Spanish desert totally, um, never, they didn't resemble anything around there. So there's no, and he couldn't believe them. And that's fair enough. You know, a geology student is watching something on TV and he doesn't find the setting acceptable because of his geological knowledge. Okay, that's, so that's there, there, is, there, is, there is something different, right? Like, I, I, I don't, I, I see, watch, I don't, I don't see that. I don't I, need landscape like, to be the reality, but I need your reality that you as an author have created to be consistent in your book. Well, I don't so see I'm, the inconsistency I'm not looking, in I'm not, The inconsistency is I don't think that from the single-minded, career-driven, tenacious character of Henrietta Savonake, who sees very clearly what John Christo is and doesn't really respect it, that she would take so seriously his final word to her. I think, yes, she, she has enough fondness and pity for, for Gerda to wear a jumper that looks like hers to make her feel better about it. And to help her win a bridge. I, I think it's a wild leap to go from helping someone win at bridge to covering up from them murdering their husband. A wild leap. And I don't think someone as intelligent, rational, career-minded and basically self-interested as Henrietta would do that. I really don't. And I think if you look at what Lucy cares about, she cares about Ainswick and she cares about social standing and getting her own way. And I don't think she'd compromise I, any of that to be I in this think, game. I, I, I don't think she's as bothered about social standing. I think she's somebody who, who's... Uh, and the way Agatha's presented her is, is almost somebody who creates her own society. It like, does rather she, help that when you're married to a, to a knight of the realm, though, doesn't it? Yeah, she, but, didn't, I mean, she didn't go and marry just anyone. As as with all Christie's, you know, the, the the knight of the realm comes across as a bit of a dunce, and the power behind the throne seems to be the person who's really um, established the power base. Like she's the one who's been able to bend all these foreign dignitaries and potentates to her will at dinner parties. Like she's the the, the commanding presence here. But I, I think she she creates her own reality around her. I think mm. he is portrayed as that powerful a person. And I, I can understand how you've not bought into it. I think, like, you have identified a lot with Agatha Christie's bright young things. And I think you're probably identifying with the career-driven, um, passionate Henrietta in this and, and, and maybe just not making that leap of faith, whereas maybe I'm not as closely tied to the Henrietta character and I just buy into the fact, well, she let her win at a few hands a bridge and she knitted the same jumper as her to make her feel less bad about herself. And she's quite a compassionate character, Henrietta. Yeah, sure, she's going to yeah. cover up. The so murder, she's not going to purchase herself problem. for a capital crime. Yeah, yeah, it's not a problem. Yeah. You know, so like <laughs> maybe I'm just not identifying closely enough yeah. with, with, with Henrietta. I, I really not... don't think it's about identification. I think it's just what is in con internally consistent for a character as Christie has presented her. But I think we should agree to disagree um, because I don't think 
yeah, I respect well, your and, and I will and I will readily admit that I am being contrarian and being in the minority. Apparently, for like the Christie fans, please feel free to comment and tell me why like, why I'm wrong on the YouTube comments. Well, I, I I would I would take it a step further because I don't consider myself a massive Agatha Christie fan. Uh, like I am new to a lot of these books, mm. um, and maybe I'm not holding her to the same high standards you are. But I, I, I think this is a good book. I would put it top tier. And the and the only reason I would knock it out of top tier is I I'm disappointed in the racial stereotyping, you know, and and the malice in it, and we we covered that in it, the regressive progressive element. Mm -hmm. So I mean, I, I I think that's the only reason I would knock it down. And I, like I did actually think that she had some genuinely brilliant bits of writing, and I think when you get back towards the end, um, and you you, you realise the description of this this statue, um, that God has carved out of wood, this pear wood, um, like we're told there, like like you were saying, that we don't get any clues, and yeah. I don't suppose we do, but we are given big hints, you know, and I did th find that that was fascinating the way that this, um, the, the way Gerda's fanaticism, her fanatical devotion to her husband has been flipped, you know, and I thought they did that quite well in the adaptation at the end where she gets a little monologue to explain how her idol has, has fallen before her eyes because she saw that look in his face when he went off with the other woman. Mm. You know, that was fascinating sort of like twist of character, particularly with the way that um, the statue was des de described, you know, with this sort of like this blind devotion and the way that everybody thought it was actually very scary, you know, because it had this this fanatical devotion. And you almost see that, you know, like if somebody yeah. it can be that fanatical and devoted and you lose that, mm. you know, just how terrifying it can be. And I, I, I did find that, you know. Um, and it is a theme that's run through a lot of Christie recently. These these spouses that are described as being medieval or feudal or fanatical in their love. Mm. This unbalanced well, love. So we I, see I, it with Faraday's and sparkling cyanide as well. This yeah, kind of worshipful well, love that's very dangerous when it's taken away from someone. Yes. And and, and also these, um, that, like that what was saying um in the, the the sort of the intro section where I was saying that this theme of still water running deep. Mm. Like we see this in Hercule Poirot's Christmas where Alfred Lee, Poirot goes, I, like Alfred Lee is one of the characters who commit the murder because psychologically he has repressed his emotions. Mm. You know, he has subjugated himself to the will of his father. And when something goes wrong, goes you know, really he wrong. will explode and, and all that passion will come out because it's still there. And again, we see it in like Five Little Pigs with Caroline Crail, where she's somebody yeah. who actually visibly expresses this anger and frustration rather than bottling it up because she sees it as a, as a release and she knows she's dangerous if she doesn't have yeah. find a release for it. You know, so like this is a, a theme that Christie has running through our books. I, I think it's quite it's one of the more interesting aspects of Christie's that I've been reading. I agree. That, you know, I agree. And I, and I do like I, I think Gerda, I find almost the most credible character, if not the most interesting to read. I do think it, it to me that was profoundly believable. She would have. She'd done. All right. Well, let's draw it to a close. We've done over well, an hour and a half. One more record. I mean, I, I didn't think we were going to go so long, but it just. This is the first one we properly, seriously disagreed on. I think, which is quite fun. Uh, it's a shame that you wouldn't accept that I was right. Um, <laughs> and I've got one more, one more comment I want to make, and it on, is because we are so far into the Christies, but she is beginning to run out of names because <laughs> we have got Ridgeway's disease here, and the Jeanette inquest Ridgeway. is. Yeah, and the inquest is held at the village of Depleach. 
and he yes. was also the unsuccessful counsel in two previous books. But is she is she running out of names, or is this just her little, giving little Easter eggs to readers? Well, are we going to agree to disagree on this? So, I think so. <laughs> okay. Well, let us continue the battle in our next podcast, and we'll see if she's recycling names again. So, indeed. All right. Well, join us next time, reader, when hopefully Pat and I will come together again in uh, in complete agreement on the greatness of Agatha. This is definitely one that. I love the character. I, I completely get why people love this book. For me, it is definitely mid-tier because it's not actually a mystery. Well, maybe it's like the it's the it's the sort of the book after which the league table. It's like the 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 honorary hollow Agatha Christie league table, and then everything else gets ranked because I think it's just so so different. But anyway, we will leave okay, it. Okay, brilliant. Join, join us next time for Taken at the Flood, which may be a mini pod. It may be a full pod. And um, we're building up to Crooked House, which I think is one of the all-time greats. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that one too. Yeah, hopefully we'll have Hannah for that as well. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to literally flip and fly to Los Angeles and make sure that we record with you. Like, I'm going to make sure this happens with Hannah because we need her insights on this one. And we wish you all, vassals, listeners of VOC, um, a wonderful new year. All the best for everything you want to achieve and experience in 2024. We hope you have a very good and healthy one to you and yours. So, uh, and yeah, thank and you it, for listening. If they've, made it to, uh, if they've made it to the end of this podcast, yes, thank you for your patience. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Pat, and have a great new year. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Bina. Thanks very bye. much. Bye. Okay, bye. By the way, have you watched Murder is Easy? No, I, I, I'm saving it. I've noticed they've had a bit of a, sort of an Agatha Christie-a-thon on uh, BBC, haven't they? So we had um, Evil Under the Sun that played, mm. and Lucy Worsley did her Agatha Christie yes. um, show. Um, and yeah, we've got the Murder is Easy. So there's uh, there's, a, there's a few bits and pieces that I would like to catch up on. I watched like about an hour, sort of like the last hour of Evil Under the Sun. Um, oh, Excellent. Yeah, just to refresh. I, I was pottering around doing some bits and pieces and it. it was on the TV, so I could easily have it on in the background. I, I want to give Murder is Easy a fair crack of the whip. Yeah, so, I mean, I really, for what it's worth, without spoiling anything, I would say I really enjoyed it. Um, excellent. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I think it's got the bones of a good story. Like, um, yeah. you um, you didn't enjoy it that much, but I, I almost enjoyed the sort of the reveal at the end, you know, mm. where the psychopath goes into it, because I, I like you shouldn't laugh, but I almost found it comical. Because like the body count was massive, you know, which is talking through like who she's killed. You're like, oh my god! Yeah, I think it's really well done, and I think where they update things and you know make, I think it's just done in a really intelligent way. The other one we watched today was because in in part of this BBC run, they showed the Billy Wilder version of Witness at of the, at the prosecution. Witness. Yeah. For the prosecution, yeah, witness for the prosecution, yeah, which I've never I've seen never... as a play, so I didn't know the twist, and it yeah, really holds that, up. Got Marlon and Dietrich in it. It's just amazing. Yeah, it was really good. So we watched that this afternoon. Really enjoyed it. Did not get. I got the first twist. Did not get the second. Or you know, like it's it, yeah, really well done. I have to say, you amateur Bina, unbelievable. I know. Imagine not know. getting the Agatha Christie twist before the end. The funny thing is, is my husband's now really starting to get them because he's just unfortunately having to be in the room when I'm watching a lot of these old Poirots and things. <laughs> so for a non-Christie fan, he's now very Christie attuned. It's hilarious that so he got more of this one than I did. Like he, he was very, very fast out the gates. 
Well, you know, he's seen too many when he's starting to spoil them for you. When he's yeah, sort I mean, of like sitting there after the first easy. hour going, this is how this yeah. is going to work out. And you're like, <laughs> like did we watch this one for? It's like, yeah, about two months ago over breakfast coffee, I was like watching a bit of the end of Murder is Easy. It's like, yeah, I remember this. I was like, oh my God, poor guy. <laughs> Thank you.